Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Thanks to Kate Kingsmill for the last three hours with The Distance Guy. She'll be back from 4 to 7pm next Wednesday. Welcome to Bite Into It. My name's Dan Morganti and joining me tonight is the wonderful Lily Ryan. Hello, how are you doing? Good, how are you doing Lily? I'm doing okay today. I've <laughs> okay. had a five day weekend, it's been pretty good. Nice. What's, uh, what's your week, like, uh, week in tech been like so far? Pretty restful, um, mostly because I got to look at a lot of the tech in my spare time instead of looking at tech in work time. So that was super interesting. Caught up on a lot of Cult of the Lamb, which yeah. uh, I've been meaning to do for a long time, but definitely was a good way to spend my long weekend. Yeah, Demonic Lamb uh, builds a, a cult for his followers and uh, travels through dungeons. Yeah. yeah. Perfect game. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and my week, my week in tech has been dealing with uh, media encoders at work, which, oh, uh, yeah, a lot of IP address stuff and all the background, talking to the IT department, getting them to even be able to see it on their, their end. Um, yeah, pretty frustrating, but um, just got to get them working and uh, then we can show whatever we want on TVs all around our precinct. So um, that's tech for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tonight, uh, we're, uh, this is Bite Into It. Um, by the way, I didn't say that up front. Um, we're talking to Senior Policy Officer at the EV Council, Natalie Thomas, about the release of Australia's National Electric Vehicle Strategy and the objectives set out in that document, uh, hopefully leading us towards a more green, more sustainable transport future. Uh, then we're talking to Shannon Rowe, a tech industry veteran in every sense of the word. She has been through six redundancies in her career. We're going to hear about her experiences in such volatile employment situations. She'll also be giving advice uh, for how to deal with the impact of redundancy in the tech industry if you're going through something similar. Um, but first, we, we got a little news. Um, you may have remembered uh, a year or two ago, we reported on uh, the Epic uh, Games um, producer suing uh, Apple for their use of their iOS um, system. Um, basically, uh, Epic was claiming that um, Apple, uh, it was antitrust for Apple to force uh, developers to use the uh, in-store iOS um, purchasing system when uh, uh, Epic, who is the maker of Fortnite, were using their own uh, digital storefront um, away from the iOS, which uh, me- meant that Apple couldn't collect on uh, a cut of their profits for using the Apple iOS store. And it cuts quite high, right? It's like 30% uh, yeah, or something. Yeah, something substantial. Mm. Um, uh, anyway, the Ninth District Court of Appeals in the US uh, has uh, reaffirmed uh, the, the call that was made last year um, that, uh, yeah, Apple is allowed to continue with their business practices in this sense um the appeals court uh said in a highly technical 91 page ruling um that the market for mobile games transactions um could remain uh with apple uh rather than epic's proposed definition of aftermarkets of ios apps distribution and ios in-app payment solutions um 
The market definition was a key point of contention in the original case since it establishes that Apple faces competition from other mobile ecosystems like Android. Um, Yeah, a bit of a win for Apple there where they get to keep developers on their storefront collecting their cut of the profits. They sure do. Mm. Yeah, um, I'm sure they'll be very happy about that. But uh, there's also stuff coming out of the EU as well where Apple are now going to have to develop ways to sideload apps outside of the App Store as well. So I wonder how this is going to play out in relation to that. Yeah, um, it seems like this is happening... you know, a lot with uh, these tech companies where the EU has a certain ruling and then the US will have a certain ruling and then, you know, China has different laws around um, how they present um, their businesses as well. So, um, yeah, it's uh, there's they do... Um, there has been precedents where they uh, will enact something that's, you know, will hurt their bottom line in the EU because it's required by law, but will not enact that in the US, such as like one off the top of my head is Blizzard Games um, Mm. showing the percentage likelihood of getting a legendary items in a loot box, which is another contentious issue. Um, It's required by law in the EU, but not in the US. So it shows it in uh, the EU, but not in... Uh, any other country. Well, I, I, need to, I need to thank the EU at the very least for making sure that we are getting rid of the lightning adapter charger because, my <laughs> God, it is time. Yeah. It is time. Thank you, Europe. Yeah, yeah awesome. Um, and uh, we've got some, some more news concerning uh, our uh, the leader from across the pond who's now resigned. Yeah, Jacinda Ardern um, made the news recently. Uh, I think it was yesterday, actually. Um, she has accepted three, not one, three new fellowships at Harvard Uni. And one of those is researching and working on challenges around the increase in generative AI tools. So this is a Tech Governance Leadership Fellowship for the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Um, And she is the first Knight Tech Governance Leadership Fellow. This is coming off of the back of her work um, while she was Prime Minister of New Zealand around the Christchurch call, which had a lot to do with how to regulate content online, particularly in the wake of the, excuse me, particularly in the wake of the Christchurch massacre. Yeah. Um, where a lot of the content of that was was live streamed. So I think it'll be pretty interesting to see what she does there. I mean, it's always interesting to kind of watch her. I've never seen someone, you know, do what she's doing in terms of just like, you know what, I'm done with this high-profile job and I'm going to do something else now. Yeah. I, I really wish our government would, like, look at that and say, you know what, we don't actually have to be, you know, sticking around for years and yeah. years and years. Yeah, and she's in a fairly u- unique position just in terms of her age where she's, you know, been the leader of a, a country um, and she's 20 years younger than any other leader around the world. Um, so going back to uni. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, and, and she knows, like, so she has more of an experience with tech just in her everyday life. And you could arguably say that just by being younger has, uh, she's more of a... a, a um, and like a digital native to um, yeah. um, having an understanding of these, you know, complex problems. And, of course, you know, um, what you just made point of before with the, the Christchurch Christ tragedy as well. Yes, and I think it'll be really interesting to see what she does around these generative AI tools because, well, you know, they are currently having their, their boom. Um, mm. And I think that her, her input into that kind of... Um, into this landscape, which is so different um, from from where the Christchurch call started, is going to be super interesting to keep an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in some more news uh, to go in line with uh, our own electric vehicle strategy, um, 
The Queensland government, um, the Palaszczuk government, has today announced extra financial assistance as part of an ongoing scheme to make electric vehicles more affordable to Queenslanders. Um, yeah, they, they've... Um, it was initially launched in uh, July 2022, uh, but today's enhanced measures uh, will ensure more Queenslanders and businesses are able to access an even greater range of EVs at better prices than ever before. Um, so these changes include uh, an increase to the rebate from $3,000 to $6,000 uh, for eligible households, earning up to a total gross household income of $180,000 per year. Um, excellent. Applicants who have already applied and received a $3,000 rebate under the earlier scheme scheme and who are under the total gross income um, can get uh, the extra 3000 um, and an increase for the eligibility threshold for vehicles, which will now in- exclude dealer delivery fees from determining uh, dutiable value from $58,000 to $68,000, including GST. So just some numbers stuff there, but basically there's just more money uh, for rebates for buying an electric vehicle in Queensland and um, more money um, for the total cost of the vehicle um, when coming through a dealership. Um, yeah, so a positive step in the right direction for electric vehicles in, uh, in Queensland. Um, yeah. You know, I rarely feel like moving to Queensland, but you hear news like this and it's really, yeah. <laughs> really tempting. Yeah, absolutely. Get a new uh, EV for on the cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in other news, um, moving to another state, South Australia, um, the University of South Australia has just released a new study um, saying that hostile workplaces and um, a lack of flexibility are the reason why women and underrepresented gender minorities are leaving their jobs in STEM, so science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Um, in other news, water is wet. Yeah, um, I feel like uh, you know it's it's actually pretty good. I you know that's flippant, but it is really good that they that they're doing this study because so few of these um, underrepresented gender minorities in STEM programs, and there are heaps of them that exist, hundreds around the place. So few of them. Uh, sorry, have any... the the workplaces or the um, the country. These, yeah, uh, right. yeah. So there are programs in universities, at workplaces, partnerships between the two, and all kinds of like government initiatives. There are very few that have any kind of measurable outcomes in terms of the impact that that has. And we know, and uh, we were, listeners may remember a couple of weeks ago on the show, we interviewed um, some experts talking about how this impacts the cybersecurity industry. Yep. But um, there were definitely some uh, concerns around people getting into the industry and then what makes them leave the industry, particularly when they're in an underrepresented gender minority. So this study... Um, is one of the first to sort of survey all of these and see what what's happening there across the breadth of them, which I think is a really useful thing, and to point out the fact that some of these are very rarely actually followed up on. Um, so these uh, the the note the research said um, that. You know, despite concerted investment by both industry and government, um, it's been next to impossible to assess the impact of the programs and that a lot of the reasons that people are leaving are just because the environment is so hostile. Yeah. There's, uh, there's a lot of hostility going on, a lot of still unaddressed sexism and uh, lack of flexibility in the working day that just push underrepresented gender minorities out of those industries. So... Um, but- yeah. I, I know that's talking specifically um, about women in the workplace and um, gender minorities, but I think that like lex- le- lack of flexibility as well just affects everyone um, uh, in no matter what job you're in. I think so. It's yeah, like absolutely. I think that's uh, 
you know, it's, it's good to study that j- just for everyone as well, no matter um, who you are. Um, yeah. But yeah, good to see that they're focusing on, um, you know, the diversity in workplaces as well. Yeah. Well, what they're saying is that there are a lot of programs that get get people into these graduate roles and graduate positions. But from there, um, that very rarely transitions into uh, people ending up in senior careers. So what we're doing is just throwing a lot of people at this kind of uh, you know, meat grinder. Yeah, I guess, and, and possibly not fixing the systemic issues within companies or businesses yeah. or the industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, now there's been this this study about it, so uh, you can go and read more about that from the University of South Australia. Mm. And the Australian Communications and Media Authority will receive more than ten million dollars over four years to launch and maintain the Australian SMS sender ID registry. The registry will help prevent scammers from imitating key industry or government brand names such as. Uh, linked or MyGov in text message headers. Um, this new layer of protection for Australian consumers against scammers using these known brands to target and deceive. Um, so the ACCC revealed just last week that um, these text message scams um, were the leading uh, contact method for uh, in 2022, um, surpassing phone calls. So there was 33% of scam reports through text message as opposed to 29% through phone calls. Um, reports to about scam text to scam watch increased by 18% in 2022. Um, and the most common category of scam reported to scam watch in 2022 was phishing, um, tricking victims into giving out personal information such as bank accounts, passwords, credit cards, or super. Um, there was a 469% increase in phishing financial losses in 2022. Um, Most phishing scams were sent via text message. So um, by providing this registry, um, the government's hoping that we can um, keep, you know, um, everyday Australians from um, suffering through more of these scam texts and um, catching or at least uh, dulling the spear of these um, scam, scam texts. Yeah, it's a really, really simple step. It makes me wonder why it didn't happen earlier. Yeah. Um, it's trivially easy to spoof text messages. Anyone who's ever had access to sending text messages on bulk for work or whatever mm. will know this. Um, so hopefully the registry is a good place to start. There's a lot that's broken about text messaging infrastructure in general, but um, having literally any measures in place will hopefully help a bit. Yeah, just just the basic the basics yeah. helping out. Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, the time is seven sixteen here on Three Triple R. You're listening to Bite Into It with Dan and Lily. Got a little track for you now. This is Sigil Seeker, uh, um, a collab between Life Formed and Janice Kwan for the video game Tunic. The time is 7.21 here on 3 Triple R. You're listening to Bite Into It. Uh, coming up, uh, we're talking to Natalie Thompson, the Senior Policy Officer at the Electrical Electric Vehicle Council. Um, Australia's long-awaited national electric vehicle strategy is now public. Um, and Natalie is here to talk to us about uh, the objectives in the strategy. Natalie, thanks for joining us. Hi, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, pleasure to have you. Um, before we start, can you just tell us um, a bit about your role at the council and what the Electric no Vehicle Council does? Yeah, so the Electric Vehicle Council is the industry peak, peak body for the EV industry in Australia. So we represent 
um, a range of members across the entire EV industry from vehicle manufacturers to the charging providers and a range of other service providers in between, including battery recyclers and others. So we have quite a broad base and basically as um, the representative body for the EV industry, our entire purpose is to drive um, the uptake of EVs in Australia. And is that a a government um, appointment or a government initiative? Uh, the EVC is is a private sector initiative. So, okay. so like a lot of other um, industry bodies, um, the industry will come together through a membership model to advocate for um, policies and um, positions that will help support industry development. So that's what we do for the EV industry. Awesome. Um, so the strategy was just released. Um, what are the objectives that uh, it seeks to achieve? Yeah, so it's it's definitely um, a welcome strategy. So up till now, there actually wasn't any sort of national strategy in the, for the EV space. So it's obviously a great thing to have in place. So the main objectives of um, the government's national EV strategy are to increase the uptake of EVs, reduce emissions and improve the well-being of Australians, increase the supply um, of affordable and accessible EVs, as well as establishing the resources and infrastructure to enable EV adoption and increase um, EV demand for all Australians as well. So how is Australia um, ranking internationally um, with these objectives or where are we sitting in like in these rankings um, yeah, before it's, it's the, before great, the um, report? Great strategy? question and it's very, very timely. So the International Energy Agency just today, about an hour ago, just published um, the Global EV Outlook for 2023 and that's kind of where they do a bit of a state of play recap of where the whole world is sitting and where things are going to go. Oh, breaking news. Mm. Yes, and so what's important is that globally we're seeing that the last 12 months EV sales were averaging 14%. Australia, for the same time period, was averaging about 4%. We're now at about 7%. But as you can see, there's a long way for us to go. And, yeah, so we're we're kind of, yeah, lagging behind a little bit. Um you said that, like, we haven't had any, like, strategy or policy like this in place before. Um, like, what what kind of initiatives have we had before this? So there's, there's been a range of actions being taken. So it's important that while there hasn't been a, a broad-reaching national strategy in the space, there have been some, you know, efforts at the national level to provide some funding for charging infrastructure and a few different um, initiatives to, to drive support for EVs. The more, most um, effort in this space has been done at the state government level. So a range of state governments have set, you know, EV targets for their own fleet, but also for, for sales in in their jurisdictions as well. So it's important that that work isn't overlooked. And I think this national EV strategy does play a role in helping to kind of coordinate and, and build the collaboration between states going forward to really drive EV uptake. Um, but the major, major development that's coming out of this um, Strategy is a commitment by the federal government to consult on a fuel efficiency standard. And so what that means is that manufacturers will be obligated to uh, improve the efficiency of all the vehicles, new vehicles that they are selling and bringing into the country, and that will then drive uptake of zero-emissions vehicles and EVs as a result. So are they, like, practising what what they preach at all? Have they, like, taken up these policies, like, uh, with their, um, like, state government fleets or anything like that? Uh, So state governments themselves have been um, accelerating their their electrical vehicle deployment as well. So one of the things that that is a barrier to that has been, to date, supply. So 
as we know, um, a lot of EVs that are brought into the country are sold immediately or they're actually sold before they land on our shores. And that's obviously a key problem. Like, the demand is there. People want to purchase EVs, whether that be governments or corporate fleets or private citizens. People want to purchase these EVs because they know the benefits they can provide um, in terms of cost and also sustainability long-term. So that major driver is actually having um, a federal government initiative, policy, policy initiative, to actually incentivise supply, which is by having a fuel efficiency standard in place, which we don't have, and we're, we're one of the only developed nations in the world that doesn't have a fuel efficiency standard. The only other country that is in the sort of developed world that, that doesn't have one is Russia. So it'd be great for us to be able to move Ooh. outside of that club. Yeah. And, um, you know... Towards the end of this year, we're hoping that that you know will be a step that we can take as a country as well. One of the things that I've certainly noticed going around Melbourne recently has been this massive surge of um, people using all different kinds of electric powered ways of getting around. Um, I myself own an electric bike, and I rode it here to get to this interview. So. Um, with electric vehicles, are we talking specifically about cars? And is there any place in this strategy for vehicles that are not that are not cars themselves, or trucks, or or anything like that? that that's a great question. So I think one of the key, um, I guess, maybe gaps in in this EV strategy has been um, the focus on on other forms of transport. We do know that in developing this, the government did look to focus on light vehicles in terms of cars purely because of the um, proportion of emissions in, te- in terms of the transport sector, which does come from cars. But obviously you raise a great point is that, you know, driving uptake of bicycles and electric bicycles can obviously play a key role in reducing emissions if people, you know, ride bikes instead of cars. There's obviously great efficiencies that we can find there. There's obviously also major, um, you know, improvements that we can find from electrifying heavy vehicles because trucking, while... It doesn't represent um, the greater proportion of, you know, transport emissions. Given the size of, of trucking as a, as a proportion of the vehicle fleet, it's actually quite a disproportionate. Like, they, they obviously do emit a serious amount of emissions because, you know, these trucks are travelling vast distances every day. And so electrifying heavy vehicles is also going to be a key priority going forward. So we are going to encourage the government to drive more work into that space because, Whilst we do know what the major drivers are to, to reduce emissions to cars, we need to have more focus um, being thrown into other sectors of transport as well. In terms of other sectors of transport, one of the things we haven't touched on here as well is is public transport and mass transit. Um, a lot of the, you know, the metropolitan railway lines, for example, are electric themselves, mm-hmm. same with the tram lines. But when we're talking about interstate travel, that is where people will be looking at using cars or flying or other emissions-heavy types of things. Um, is there any space in a strategy like this for exploring the kinds of carbon-neutral ways that we might be able to get from A to B rather than cars themselves? I realise that as a country, we have a pretty unique problem in that we are quite large and fairly sparsely populated compared to um, places like the United States, which makes infrastructure a big challenge and range a perpetual question. But when it comes to mass transit, particularly intercity mass transit, is there a space to, to talk about that in this type of strategy? And how does that fit in with the overall objectives that you've got? It's a really good point to raise. And while I think it's not going to be part of this particular strategy, given 
the sort of focus of, of the department involved in developing this strategy, which is focused on road transport. It is obviously important to look at other ways of, of reducing emissions in the transport sector overall. Obviously, that comes back to a number of different um, decisions that have to be made about where Australia goes. Um, it would be, you know, ideal if we had a situation where there was, you know, um, intercity trains, high-speed rail, all those kinds of things. But we know that, you know, to date, projects like that have never um, succeeded. So it's, it's the I guess, perpetual dream. What our role is. Yeah, it, it would be amazing, but in terms of what our role is, we're focusing on where are those emissions today, how do we shift those um, by you know electrifying our road transport fleet, and that's kind of our immediate priority. I wondered if buses formed a part of that. Buses are, are, are a key thing. I think one, um, I guess, aspect of why it wasn't really factored into this strategy is because um, in terms of you know federal government, state government, um, divisions of jurisdiction, right, yeah. um, that does fall in the state remit. And we do know that um, a lot of state governments have set targets to electrify their bus fleets as well. So there is obviously exciting work happening um, in, in Victoria, in New South Wales, across the country in terms of, you know, manufacturing buses as well. We have electrified buses being made and assembled here as well. And so it's important that we obviously do look at that as well as a, as a key way to, to really improve the sustainability of transport. Um, were there... Is there any recommendations for improving infrastructure as well, not just the vehicles themselves? So just like more, more, um, more stations, more charging ports around Australia and things like that. Definitely. So there's been a lot of really great work today being done and led by state governments in terms of rolling out their charging networks. And so you know, every month or so, there's actually a new announcement about new charging stations being installed. You know, across major highways, but also destination charging. You know. It, um, holiday parks and a whole range of other other places. The federal government um, has, I think, recently announced another sort of funding pool going towards the Driving the Nation Fund, which will obviously add um, to the existing charging network. But you're right, it actually does play a key role in, in EV adoption in terms of having the infrastructure in place to, so that consumers know that they're not going to have range anxiety, they're going to you know be supported. And so while we're not at the point today where we have that guarantee in place that a consumer knows they can drive wherever they want and they'll be charging, we're definitely heading towards that um, over the next few years as well. Um, and so, like, you're talking about, like, the, you know, people having the, sorry, what do you call it, the distance anxiety or something or... Um, range, range. Range anxiety, anxiety. sorry, yeah. Yep. Um, so I guess, like, that, that comes down to people's perceptions and, like, picking it up. So, like, these, um, this strategy, how, how would the, if the implementation of these um, things affect just the average person um, in the community? That's, that's a really good question. I think, I guess it comes back to to how these um, additions are actually communicated as well to the public, because I think one of the key things about things like range anxiety, it actually is an awareness issue about, you know, what the range is actually required for an average person day to day, right? So if you have an EV with a range of, say, 300 kilometres, you're not going to need to charge your car on a daily basis. Maybe that'll be an issue um, if you do a big weekend, but for the most majority of people, you know, they're driving, if they are commuting to work, they're driving under 50 kilometres a day um, for the most part. So it's also important to take that into account as well. And I think there is definitely a role for, for governments to step in and actually increase that awareness by, you know, providing drive days and other initiatives to, to really increase um, awareness of, of what it means to have an EV um, and what that means for a consumer day to day. 
We heard earlier in the show a bit about um, the new incentives that Queensland has put in place to help increase adoption of electric vehicles. Um, states like Victoria have lagged behind in a lot of cases. How are you expecting that um, this strategy will help to uplift the policies that are happening in states that have not been as uh, forthright with this kind of policies, pro-EV policies? So it's an important yeah, announcement, I guess, made by Queensland last week, which has really lifted um, where those incentives and rebates are. So I think for the most part across the country, the average incentive is around 3000 um, and Queensland has obviously now just doubled that, um, which is obviously going to increasingly derive demand um, for people in Queensland. So it would be great to see other states pick that up because I think bringing down upfront costs um, at this point in the EV transition is going to play a key role in obviously boosting demand. Um, in terms of whether this national strategy will play a role in that, it, it, you know, it remains to be seen. But we think that you know, this can be an iterative process over time. I think there's a key role for the federal government to play in coordinating and really driving collaboration between state governments in terms of that approach and really setting the trajectory going forward of where that needs to go and what measures need to be in place to really drive consumer adoption as well. Um, I, like this has been um, fascinating. We hope that like the their um, these objectives are, are achieved. Um, what fi- what finally? What's the biggest obstacle to achieving these goals currently? Yes, yeah, so I think I've mentioned it um, a couple of times. But the main barrier that we do have in Australia is that lack of a fuel efficiency standard. Yeah. So without that in place, um, manufacturers are not sufficiently incentivised to direct um, products or EVs to Australia because they're instead incentivised to keep them in Europe or in America or in Asia instead of sending them here. So um, there is a consultation currently open until the end of May on the development of the fuel efficiency standard, and we encourage anyone to make submissions to that process to really drive home to the government that we need an ambitious standard that is competitive with you know global markets to make sure that we can really reduce emissions in our transport fleet and make sure Australia isn't left behind. Um, Natalie Thompson is Senior Policy Officer at the Electrical, uh, Electric Vehicle Council. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show, Natalie, and uh, talking about the new National Electric Vehicle Strategy. No worries. Thanks so much. Thanks. Um, right now we're going to hear a little track, um, Mirage Machine by Ben Prunty. This is from the game uh, Subnautica Below Zero. It's 7.41pm and you are on Bite Into It on 3RRR with Dan and Lily. And joining us for this next segment is Shannon Rowe, who is going to talk about tech redundancies. Shannon's worked in a number of consulting and product companies in Melbourne over the last 25 years and specialises in delivery and program management. Through her career, Shannon has been through six redundancies, including in the very recent round of tech layoffs that's going on right now. And uh, through all of this, uh, she's become something of an expert in redundancy and is here to come and share her expertise with us. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you. So talk to us. What's the deal with tech redundancies at the moment? Are they actually ramping up or is this news overblown? You hear everything like Google's just gotten rid of 50,000 million people or whatever, and then the same thing happens the next time. Uh, You know, the following week, Amazon does it, then Microsoft, and then smaller companies – so is this is this a thing? Is it being overhyped? What's happening? 
Uh, no, I don't think it's being overhyped. It's been happening in the US for a while now and it's certainly, I think, from personal experience and places I know here, particularly in Melbourne, it really has ramped up sort of in this part of the calendar year. Um, certainly I could reel off at least sort of six or eight companies that have a huge presence in Melbourne. Some of them are global as well, but they've done significant rounds of of redundancies, yeah. And what's driving these? I think uh, there's a number of factors, but certainly there is a, a bit of a sense of that we are following suit from the US uh, and that a lot of companies are doing this in order to try and retain profits for shareholders um, and that also seeing it as an opportunity to perhaps slim down organisations and make more profits. I suspect there are also, and, and certainly I know from personal experience, there are organisations that are that are actually doing cost-cutting in order to try and survive. Can we just get uh, um, like the scale of um, the businesses and the how long you've been working in the industry? When was the first redundancy? And yeah. then like um, what was the biggest redundancy or the redundancy from the biggest company and the redundancy from the smallest company yeah. and things like that. Yep. Yeah, okay, that's quite an interesting question because actually the biggest company would have been the first one because I worked for way back in the 90s, <laughs> um, the, the, the largest uh, sort of IT company in Australia at that point and then they were bought out by GE and then bought out by CSC, like big American conglomerates and they made 200 people redundant all at the same time and that was back in the 90s so that was pretty huge. Um, and then my second redundancy would have been the smallest, which was I, I'd sort of knee-jerk reaction to that. I went to a really small company um, that went from 20 to 40 to 20. Um, <laughs> so I sort of knew what was going on and there was a redundancy of one. Um, oh, yeah. really? Yeah, yeah. That's but heartbreaking. That, no, it was time. I'd been there for quite some time, so okay. I was actually okay with it. So it, it's been a mixture of things, but yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, what, like, what, uh, what's the scope of your um, positions in these um, businesses? I imagine the first one was you were in a more junior position, yeah, and then yeah, yeah, you've got yeah. more senior as time's gone on. Yeah, so it's sort of like junior project management in the sort of first one, or getting into it, and the second one I was like the project manager in in the small company Um, then I was a project manager in a a mid-sized consulting company and then I kind of switched to product and then I was doing large-scale program management Um, things shifted in the business and they weren't doing that style of work anymore and then I think another one was uh, a a small Melbourne startup that had grown by acquisition and sort of had bought companies overseas, which where more of their customers were, and my role moved overseas. And the last one was an Australian business that just hasn't been doing well after COVID and, and they needed to do cost-cutting. Yeah. And there was, again, like 100 of us, 25%, which is it's, that's a lot for yeah. an Australian-based business as well. Is this uh, like a, a similar... Um a similar trajectory for a lot of other people in tech. Have, do you know a lot of other people who've had, um, you know, at least one redundancy or, or more? Um, oh, that's – yeah, yeah, I think it, it can be quite common. I think in particularly the area that I work in, delivery, we we do all say we tend to be the first to go. Yeah. Um, you need the, the people that write code um, at sort of at the end of the day and, and we are sometimes seen as overhead. Um, so, yeah, it, it is – I think more common for for my role. Um, So that's something I've sort of come to accept over time. 
Um, six is probably not that common. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly wasn't deliberate. Um, but yeah, it's it's just happened over time. So yeah. How how has this round of redundancies uh, compared to other rounds that we've seen over time in the tech industry? Like all industries have their ups and downs, but um, tech is experiencing this right now where other industries are booming and hiring lots, which is really interesting to observe. It's not like the GFC, for example, where many sectors were suffering. Um, is it is it comparable to something like the dot-com bust? Is it smaller scale? How do you feel about it in, in sort of that longest longer-term context? Yeah, a lot of people are saying this stuff sort of happens in waves within tech and certainly my first redundancy was part of the dot-com bust, so I did experience that. I do think this is quite different. It's, it's still not at that scale, but it's certainly the biggest thing I think we've seen since the dot-com bust within tech, um, yeah. Yeah. And given given there are probably people listening now who have also been impacted by this type of thing this time around, um, as someone who's had a bit of experience with this, do you have any advice for folks who have been made redundant or also for folks who are worried about it? Yeah, absolutely. I think some of the key things are it is your role that is made redundant, not you as a person. And you have to remember while while we are all humans, a lot of the humanity gets taken out of this process. Um, redundancy is like redundant is a pretty tough it's word. It's a harsh word. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think we should change that word, but it, it's your role that's gone. Um, I think there's a few things. It's, it is uh, it's a process that you need to go through and people do often say it's akin to the grieving process and, mm. and certainly if you look that up there are various different stages and most people go through that. Um, for me, I can do it a lot quicker these days but, you know, it still has an impact. Um, but and it's also I think a key thing to remember is it's not about you, your skills, your experience, the value that you've brought to an organisation and don't let it devalue the good work that you've done because you would be rather surprised at how much uh, time often that people get to make these decisions and the sorts of scope they get. Often it is literally here is your budget, you need to cut this much. Uh, here's a spreadsheet of lines with numbers on it and get back to us by tomorrow. It, it is often the case. Um, has this kind of thing like blunted your enthusiasm for, for your work or like for being in the industry? Um, no, but I, I mean, I certainly have the last couple of jobs haven't lasted as long. I've sort of tended to do two to three years and the last few have been sort of one, one and a half. And I have been a bit like, Ooh, do I want to keep <laughs> going for a new job um I I'm just thinking more because specifically working in delivery and I've gotten to a point where I've gotten more senior and there are less jobs I'm I'm just rethinking what do I want to do longer term I'm also getting a little bit older and starting to think a bit about retirement so I still love the industry and I still want to work in it I'm more just thinking for the first time in my life of what's a bit more longer-term plan. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe you can just keep doing it and then you have like six-month holidays here and there. And <laughs> true, true. Yeah, sounds like a, um, what I want to do right now, actually, um, yeah. Yeah, is wouldn't mind taking a holiday like that. I, I did once go. I just went to India for four months. I oh. had a two-week trip and I just changed it. Well, silver lining there, yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yep. 
Are there any, I mean, the other, the flip side of this is that sometimes uh, there are probably also people listening who have been the person who received the spreadsheet and said, get back to us by tomorrow. Um, I'm assuming that you've seen people like and organizations do this well and do this poorly. What do you think makes it go well and what do you think makes it go a lot less well? Yeah, that is a great question. And I actually had a call with someone today who reached out to me knowing that my, my redundancy experience and knowing that he's about to go through that process with his company and wanted to just talk over his plan and ask if there was anything they could do better or that they'd missed. And one of the things I think for companies is there is no right way or no great way to do this. Like there just never is, but there's less worse ways you can do things, I think. I think mm. if you can do things in person or as much in person as you can possible, um, mass emails are really, I think, quite uh, – that that really takes the humanity out of it. Um, I think giving people a bit of space and time and flexibility and knowing that – People react to things differently. Some people might want to just cut their ties and walk away the next day. Some people mm. might need a little bit more time and space to say their goodbyes to people within the company. Yeah, no, fair enough. There are also, I think, laws in Australia around redundancies, right, that, that mean that you may end up staying on with the company while you know that this has occurred. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's generally redeployment options depending on the size of the company. They may be able to offer you an equivalent or different position mm-hmm. within the company or sister or associated companies as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's the what's on the horizon for you at the moment? Um, so I'm currently, as I call it, fun employed. Yeah. Um, I, I was I was on holidays uh, when it happened. I was in Antarctica. Um, oh my! So yeah, I've been back. Uh, I sort of got back mid Feb. So I I have been taking my time, but yeah, I am sort of just dipping my toe in the water now to see what's around and chatting to folks to see there are companies out there that are still hiring as much as there are layoffs. There are definitely places still hiring. Yeah, awesome. Um, well, Shan, you've got like a really unique experience, I think, uh, in <laughs> tech. And it sounds like you you generally keep a positive attitude about, yeah. um, you know, what could be seen as, um, you know, cr- um, crushing. Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk to us about your experience in, in tech. Thanks for having me. No worries. Um, this is Suborbital Gravitron uh, by uh, Rom DiPrisco and Jesper Kidd from Unreal Tournament 3. That was uh, Suborbital Gravitron uh, by Rom DePrisco and Jesper Kidd from Unreal Tournament 3, a uh, like early 2000s gem. Uh, the time is 7.56 here on 3RRR. Uh, bite into it. We only have a, a couple of minutes left. Uh, Lily, do we have a, a little bit of weird news or events or what, what, what have you? Yeah, we, we have a little bit of both. Um, first up, uh, Grimes, who is uh, the ex of Elon Musk. Famous uh, musical magician famous musical magician whose yeah ex-husband's extremely divorced energy ruined everyone's favorite <laughs> social media site yeah. um has uh decided to split the royalties or has offered to split the royalties of her upcoming album with an ai program that's called war nymph that musk was also involved with so the deal is that apparently grimes will split 50 percent royalties on any successfully uh successful ai generated song that uses her voice same deal as any artist that she would collaborate with um 
because she feels that AI-generated music should be, you know, it has its own form of expression, that it is its own thing, and therefore you should be able to use it. I don't know if this is like a Hatsune Miku kind of deal or what. Is but... this? Does this mean this money's going into an account to, like, um, mature until the AI grows sentience and is able to use it on its 18th birthday or something like that? Is that I... one of these scenarios? Not entirely sure, okay. to be honest. <laughs> um, I don't know whether it goes to that or whether it goes to the the person who's created the thing um, with the with the AI. Yeah. I'm not sure. Well, a lot of interesting implications yeah. otherwise, yeah. Yeah, no, it's certainly also taking the opposite tack of, you know, some other labels that are saying, uh, you know, please don't use our music in any of this at all or we will sue you forever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, coming up on uh, Friday, we'll just get... Through it quickly. DreamHack is on at Melbourne Olympic Park. Um, there's heaps of esports competitions, com- cosplay, uh, bring your own computer. There's local artist stalls and tables, so you can go buy some local art um, and a fighting game comp you can enter. There's uh, cash prizes and things like that. Uh, more importantly, perhaps uh, Gamers for Action supporting UNICEF is having a charity stream this Friday, 3 p.m., to raise money for the children of the Ukrainian conflict. The campaign allows the community and private sector to come together to raise critical funds to directly help children and families affected by emergencies uh, by gaming, streaming or watching others play their favourite video game um, you can support Gamers for Action uh, more than 20 creators and 10 streamers uh, will be live um, from Ukraine, they're already joined donating their skills and time to the campaign um, watch and donate at twitch.tv uh, forward slash Atlassian Live uh, that's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N live um, Thanks so much, uh, Lily, for being uh, my partner here today on Bite Into It. Thank you. Um, our guests to this evening were Natalie Thompson from the EV Council and Shannon Rowe, uh, Delivery and Program Manager extraordinaire. Um, thanks to Adam Christou and podcaster Kerry Smythe. Um, we've been Bite Into It and we'll be back next Wednesday evening. Uh, stay tuned for the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.